Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today I'm speaking with Nasma Al-Khafif, an early childhood consultant and bilingual mom living in Columbus, Ohio. Born and raised in Cairo, Egypt, she holds a master's in education and a bachelor's in psychology. Nasma is also a certified AMI 3-6 guide and positive discipline parent educator. As a parenting coach and consultant, Nasma is passionate about providing children with the best environment and resources needed to reach their full potential. In addition to her professional work, Nasma is a mother of two bilingual children and implements Montessori-inspired parenting in her home. In our conversation, Nasma and I discuss how she discovered Montessori and what bilingualism looked like for her growing up in Cairo versus what it looks like in her life now in the U.S. She shares how one of the greatest dilemmas for her and her husband in raising their children with the Arabic language is how to find the balance between their two dialects of Arabic, Standard Arabic, or Fusha, which is used for reading and writing, and Egyptian Arabic, which Nasma and her husband use for conversations. Nasma also shares about when she decided to speak in Arabic to her children and what that linguistic and emotional shift was like for her. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nasma. Hi, Nasma. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Thank you, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you today. Uh, to get started, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do. My name is Nasma Al-Tafif. I am an AMI uh, trained Montessori teacher, and I also hold a master's in early childhood education. Currently, I'm working as a peer mentor and a parent coach and a parent of two uh, little kiddos. My first daughter, her name is Hannah. She's five and a half and Zane is three and a half. Um, we, I'm originally from Egypt, but currently we live in the States and we've been living in the States for almost 10 years now. Um, so my first language is Arabic, Egyptian Arabic. And in our home, we use both languages, so both English and Arabic. So we're going to talk about Montessori and languages, of course, but let's start with Montessori. I'd love to hear how you first found out about Montessori and what drew you to Montessori. So the first I came across Montessori was after I finished my bachelor's in psychology, and I was very interested in child psychology. Um, I was looking for my next step in my career and I wanted to do something related to the child development and ch child learning. And I came across the Montessori method. I was, um, I was baffled because I couldn't believe that this method has been in practice for almost like over a hundred years and we're still 
stuck in the loop of the traditional um, education that I uh, I personally fell victim to. Um, you know, like this, the one size fits all kind of approach. Um, and just it made me realize that this is what the world needs and this is what the children today need. They need something. They need an approach that respects their development, that it, you know, it sees that each child is unique and we all learn differently. And um, to reflect on my own uh, experience growing up, I was, I was not like an A student at all. I was at the bottom of my class. At the, a certain point, I remember at one point, one of my teacher called me stupid or dumb and I <laughs> yeah even though it's been maybe 25 years or more oh man I still remember it so clearly and I believed that about myself for so long and I still at some points believe it because you know the children are very susceptible to um to to adults comments and um once I broke from that you know cycle of the traditional um system and I had some control over my own education, own learning, I was able to succeed. I was able to finish my undergrad and later my postgrad with honors. Um, so I just know how impactful a proper education can be. And that's when I realized, you know what, this is what I want to do. Uh, I want to spread the word. And um, I remember looking for like, a foundation or a school or a center that teaches Montessori and at that point I was I was in Egypt and I found um, like the center in Toronto where my cousin went before and she told me you know what if you want Montessori come here <laughs> because here at the center uh, my trainers were trained by Renelda Renelda Montessori the great-grandchild of Maria Montessori so um, and I'm glad that they did, uh, that I did. It was a life-changing experience, especially that they, um, and you know, like AMI trainings are very hardcore. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, they teach you or train you in a way that Mont the Montessori method becomes your second nature. You don't know that you're doing it because mm. it's so ingrained in you. Um, and yeah, and since then I'm, uh, I'm a very strong advocate uh, for the philosophy. Yeah, that's awesome. Were you already a parent when you did Montessori training or was that before you had children? That was before. Yeah, way before. Uh, but I knew that I, if I couldn't, if I didn't have the experience myself um, and the support that I needed, I would like to provide, even, even if I can't spread the word as much as I hope to do, I can at least provided for my children, like at that time, my future children. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so then how did the way that you think about Montessori change once you had children? Was there anything that was different or surprising or unexpected? Um, so when I, uh, when I first found that I was pregnant, I knew where to look. I knew what to do you know, everything by the book, I prepared the environment, I prepared myself, I read, you know, countless of books, you know, I got this in the bag, you know, I was so <laughs> confident. <laughs> so, um, 
especially that I, I was um, I was a guide for a couple of years. I was great with children. You know, I didn't have um, any problem thinking that I will be able to apply the the philosophy with no problems. But there was one one aspect that I didn't consider to put in consideration is my child is a, an independent human being. And even though you feel like you know all the things, the textbook tells you what to do, and this is supposed to be the outcome, that's not the case, maybe once or twice. But then it just um, gave me a huge respect for the uniqueness of a child and their own potential. Um, and that you don't have control over the outcome, you have control over the environment, that preparing yourself, preparing your environment. The other day I was joking with my husband, I was telling him if someone was you know, taking a video of our house and doing a time lapse, they'll see the furniture running around <laughs> because we always like change and and adjust according to their needs and to the to their development so our house is not doesn't look the same over the years um and and having both children very close in age it, i could tell that it doesn't matter how much you provide for them as long as you give them what they need, they're gonna flourish in their own way, in their own p- potential. And um, the closest thing I can think of is that if you have a seed, if I give you a pumpkin seed and you say, okay, I want this pumpkin seed, I'll do everything for it to become an apple seed. I don't want it to be a pumpkin seed. I want this is success for me. The pump- You might ruin the seed and you'll not get the apple seed. But if you give it the right, you know, environment, the right nutrition needs, it will flourish and bloom into the most wonderful pumpkin. So that's that's the the realization I had when I became a parent and like being uh, honest with myself and reflect on my, you know, consciously reflect on my actions and why am I doing that? Is it because I want the specific outcome or is it because I'm trying to provide the perfect atmosphere for them. So, yeah. Hmm. I love that analogy. I haven't heard that one before. That is a really great analogy. And I think that as a teacher, it's also important to ask yourself those questions. Am I doing this Mm -hmm. to get a specific outcome? Am I doing this for the benefit of each individual child and the class as a whole as well uh did anything change when you had your second child as far as your approach and how you were um I guess executing Montessori at home so having my second child um it was easier in some ways and more challenging in other in others um easier because okay now I know what to expect and now I know what worked and what didn't challenging because I at that point I had a 15 months old and a newborn and trying to uh, attend to both needs at the same time it's very difficult because you have some some people would say like Irish Irish twins like they're very Mm. close in age there's still two babies but they're 
they have an age gap. Um, and uh, yeah, and just realizing the challenging, another challenging part was realizing that they are, they are siblings, but they're very different in personalities. They have different um, skills, they have different temperament, they have different needs. So again, just putting myself in a position where questioning consciously, are you trying to do what's easy? You know, like one size fits all again, like regressing back to the thing that you were trying to run away from, or are you attending to each and everyone's needs? Like respecting that there's, it goes back to respecting that each child is different. And how would you treat a child? How would you, how would you treat an adult? So for example, you would treat your friend differently than you would treat like another colleague. So because you have respect for each one of them, not all of them like the same. So same thing with the children, like I treat them differently in some ways to attend to their needs and their um, inclinations. Hmm. Yeah. And that goes back to also what you were saying before about the one size fits all education system that didn't work for you as a child. Yeah. 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 Um, do your children go to a Montessori school now? Yes, they do. They're both in children's house. Um, and yeah. And uh, once they went to the preschool, uh, the preschool, I had the luxury to just be a mom, if that makes sense. Because before then with COVID, I was homeschooling them and I just, I, I wore too many hats and not that I didn't want to, but I felt like at, so, as, at a certain point, my daughter just wanted me to be just a mother, you know, just don't worry about teaching me. I just want to, I just want my mom. So I'm so glad that I was able to find, um, I'm on Tesori school that I can trust. And since then, it's been uh, a very nice transition. Yep. Wow, that's great. What has that experience been like for you to be on the parent side of things in the children's house? So on the parent side of things, it was it was challenging because it, we were homeschooling. So we don't have like the dynamics of having other children and, you know, having role models in your classrooms or um, so the challenging part was I think it's the emotional part because you're like emotionally attached to again the result like you want it you feel like okay so how come she's not getting this concept I did everything right you know it's just the focus the micromanagement management becomes very clear and amplified uh, when it's just one-on-one and being the parent of the child. Uh, but once you let let this go and just, you know, let her be and explore and whatever comes, that's her, that's her, that's her, um, you know, role it's to, you know, grow and learn and become her, her um, best self. Um, so yeah, that that was the the part where the homeschooling. My little one, my uh, second one, uh, Zane, he also had some homeschooling, not too much, um, up until he was uh, ready to go to the um, 
children's house. He was two years old. He was three years old when he uh, when we, he was enrolled because I was waiting for him to, you know, the potty training, the toilet training, and to be able to express himself um, and, you know, tell me what he wants. He can, you know, verbalize things. And once he was able to do that, um, I was able to, you know, be comfortable with enrolling him in a, in a preschool. Has there been anything that has surprised you about your experience, um, I guess, watching them go off to Children's House? Yeah, like they're, they're the character. Their character is, is they surprise me every day. The, the things that they say, the, the way they act, I, I forget that they're five and three-year-olds. Like, I, <laughs> uh, I remember yesterday, uh, Zane, um, we were arguing about something. So that's a one, that's another thing. We have like a full on debate and argument. And uh, I remember at the end of the argument, Zane was like, mommy, believe in yourself. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was stunned. And um, again, about two weeks ago, uh, we were doing the laundry, folding the laundry, Hannah and I. And Hannah was like, you know what, mommy? Teamwork makes the dream work. So these <laughs> things like and concepts that I love, um, love hearing from them and seeing them apply in their life and how their, their environment in school um, is the same as the environment at home. So there's like consistency in the way in the adults, in their environment, and in the approach in the environment, which I feel like has a very strong impact. Mm, yeah, definitely. I love that. Okay, let's talk a little bit about languages. So tell me about your language experiences growing up and what did languages and bilingualism look like in your life as a child and young adult? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Egypt, which is a Middle Eastern country, and they talk uh, um, Arabic, but it's an Egyptian dialect. Um, so up until high school, I uh, the family home was uh, Egyptian Arabic. When I go to school, there are a couple of subjects in English, uh, but you know all the social interactions are in Arabic. All the teachers are Egyptians. And then in high school, I transferred to an international school, which has more of a multicultural uh, student group. Um, all the teachers were either British or Americans. So there was a sh there is a shift that happened uh, during that time where the predominant language at the time was English instead of the Egyptian Arabic. So so all my subjects were in English. All my interactions at school are mostly in English. The only time I was exposed to the Egyptian uh, Arabic, either if if it's an outside interaction or with my parents or my family. And then I realized that looking back, I realized that my conversation started to have like a hybrid of both languages. So I would say like a... Um, sentence half of it is English and half of it is Arabic and nobody had a problem with that and I, I didn't have a problem because everybody understands everyone and that's fine um, and I see that this is a like a unique problem um, 
for me and for the community that I, I belong to or I was a part of. Um, my husband, he was, he grew up in a Middle Eastern country as well, and he has the same problem. So he would speak both languages in one sentence. So yeah, that's, that's my experience growing up. So I can, I can speak in English and Arabic, uh, but the English is not that strong and the Arabic is not that strong, you know, like they're both, they're always like in a conflict kind of way when you were in high school what language did you use as a social language with your friends or was it kind of a mixture of both so it was a mixture of both but predominantly English and the entertainment and tv shows and all of that was in English yeah Mm, okay and then did you go to university in Egypt Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, but it was the American University in Egypt, so it's the same, um, like the same environment uh, from high school to the to my bachelor's. It was all in English, um, and my professors and instructors were in English as well. The English speaking from English speaking countries, and then I moved here. So um, still English. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's my experience with, with both languages. And at certain, at some points, I actually studied French in high school and Spanish, but um, it, they didn't click with me at all. Like I can mm. just say like, hello, how are you? And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so did you meet your husband here? And what language did you speak with him Um I guess, when you first met, and has that changed? So, uh, yeah, my husband and I, we met um, here in the States. Uh, He was finishing his uh, MBA, and I was finishing my AMI training. And actually, one of the things that uh, brought us together was the Montessori method, because I was so passionate. I'm still, I still am, but uh, at that time, I was like, going crazy I want to tell everybody that I meet about the philosophy and like you know it's been here and the 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 solution is here and uh he was so impressed by the philosophy and he really saw um how it aligns with uh with his values and with what he believed as well and that brought us closer because like you know oh we have a common ground oh (laughs) and uh yeah we had the same you know uh future i guess um plans or future purpose that we want to be of benefit to others so for me that was through education early childhood education for him was like different projects with different um communities and just spreading you know help as much as we could yeah so when you're when you were expecting your first child was the plan to raise her bilingual from the start and what did that look like when in your mind when you envisioned it before she was born and then did that change the reality when she was here when I was expecting my expecting my first child 
I knew that our approach to language will be different because ideally, and ideally it would be, you know, just expose her to Arabic and when she goes off to school or she goes off to nursery, whatever, uh, she's going to get the second language, um, which is, which is what I would, I would have wanted if the case is that there is a strong language at home. But for our unique situation, I knew that we don't have that strong language to, um, to, to, to expose her to it. So, for example, when I was uh, studying Montessori and learning about how the child develops the language and how important it is for self-expression, for thinking, um, the the child starts to learn the language prenatally from a prenatal stage, like just hearing them his mother tongue. So, because my actual like day-to-day language is like a mixture of both. I wanted to avoid that for my child or for my children. I wanted them to have a, one strong foundation, one strong language that they can build other languages on. So because we live in the States and we don't have like Arabic uh, resources, I chose to start with English, even though there was there were a lot of criticism but I felt like we're entering like uncharted territory because the Arabic that we use, the Egyptian Arabic is just for conversation, but for reading and writing and, you know, understanding Quran, the holy book of Muslims, you need to understand a whole, an whole nother uh, Arabic language, which is, which is the Fusha, but we don't speak it. So there is not enough exposure for one child to to absorb the language. So I decided to go with English because English, I have the resources, I, um, I'm more comfortable with the language. Um, they'll have the environment prepared for them to, to, you know, the signs in the streets, the people talking in grocery stores, the, the TV shows, the songs, uh, the books. So I knew that it would be very easy for them to absorb this language and to later apply in reading and writing and uh, comprehension and then start building another language. So now that they went to preschool, now we're having this shift in our home. So the preschool and going out, that's English, all English. Whenever, when we are in our home, we speak Arabic, the Egyptian Arabic. Mm. So yeah, like one place, one language kind of uh, method. Yeah. yeah. What was that like to make that shift between speaking English at home to Arabic? Um, it takes a lot of like consciously reminding ourselves that, you know, this is what we're doing now. And the children now are kind of like they're in a stage where they're passive bilingual. So they understand Arabic very well, but they're not speaking it. But I see an improvement now that they know, okay, so I know that mom and dad, they understand English, but now they want us to speak only Arabic at home. So they, they, they're doing like a lot of effort to, you know, 
what is this word in Arabic? What is this word in Arabic? And they are trying to to speak it at home more often. Yeah. Mm. And have you started speaking in Arabic only to your husband or do you still speak English to each other? Uh, we still speak that mixture of language. <laughs> um, it's, it's very hard. It's very hard to, to make that conscious effort the whole time, especially that you've been doing it for a very, for a very long time, for, for years and years. So we're still working on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So tell me a little more about the differences and similarities between Egyptian Arabic and standard Arabic and what that looks like in your family. Yeah, so Egyptian Arabic is used in conversations, in entertainment, but standard Arabic, which is the fusha, the Arabic fusha is used in uh, books, official documents, uh, scriptures, uh, Quran. Um, so that's the main, like, that's the language, the Arabic language that people read and write. And, um, and they have differences in terms of pronunciation, uh, some meanings. Uh, composition, um, idioms, they have like a lot of differences. Uh, for example, the other day, um, Zayn, my, my three-year-old, he asked his dad, because it was snowing outside, so he was asking him, what is snow in Arabic? I saw my husband's face, he was, he was kind of confused and, and hesitant to answer. And then he finally answered. And be, and the reason why is because he didn't know if he should tell him in Egyptian Arabic or in, you know, the Fusha Arabic. Because in Egyptian Arabic, we would say telg. But in Fusha, it's telj. So they sound different. Um... And uh, yeah, so that's that's the, the the way we're trying to approach it. Um, we're trying to speak the Egyptian language, like just the conversation, so they're, you know, to preserve their heritage, their connection to their family. Um, but with the Fusha, we try to do like a homeschooling kind of system where, you know, they have their playroom, they have a part of it, the structure play, they have um, sandpaper letters in Arabic, uh, the movable alphabets in Arabic. And the, the nice thing about that, that once they saw it, they knew what they what what there were, even though they're not still uh, familiar with the symbols. But they knew, OK, so this is this is a sandpaper letter. What sound does this make? So they already know how to use it. They already know what it's there for. Um, and that's come that comes back to how I wanted like a strong foundation I that I can build on it later. Yeah. That's great. Um is standard Arabic the spoken language for anyone or does everyone who speaks Arabic have a dialect and then standard Arabic is the written language? So some dialects some dialects are much closer to the standard Arabic than the Egyptian dialect, for sure. Hmm. So I, I don't think they would have the same gap that we have between the Egyptian dialect and the Fusha Arabic. Yeah. 
Mm, got it. So um, when you're doing reading and writing practice or even just reading books at home with your children, is it mostly Arabic now or is it kind of a mix of English and Arabic? So now it's uh, it, it's okay. So it's a mixture of both. And I'll tell you why. Uh, at home now, we are focusing on the Arabic language and we're also focusing on the Islamic studies. So for Islamic studies, they still need it in English to comprehend what I'm saying or what we're reading. Uh, but for Arabic, that's, we're treating it as a third language, if that makes sense. For the Fusha uh, Arabic, we're treating it as a third language. Um, so apart from just, you know, apart from the Islamic studies, we stick to speaking the Egyptian dialect and, you know, practicing and studying the Fusha Arabic. And have you been able to connect with any other families in your area or any peers for your kids to have um, interactions with others in Arabic? Um, yeah, we we have a couple of families, but they live a bit uh, further away. Uh, but I still see, I still see that the children who are born and raised here, they still have that challenge of just sticking to Arabic. Uh, especially that at least I didn't find any strong uh, resources that are age appropriate and align with my values and principles in Arabic. So the tools are are lacking a little bit. Uh, but when we last last uh, summer we went to Egypt and we spent about a month, and the, I could see the impact that it had on the children just being in an environment that is enriched and immersed with Arabic. They had, you know, they were speaking Egyptian Arabic by the end of the trip. They were <laughs> using gestures, hand gestures and facial expressions that, you know, it's, it's, it's an Egyptian <laughs> identity. So for sure, having that, you know, that village really helps uh, strengthen the language. Yeah, definitely. Um have you looked for, I guess you said you had the movable alphabet and the sandpaper letters in Arabic. Are there other resources that you've found that you feel are Montessori aligned that are in Arabic? Um, so there, there has to be like there, um, I had to be more flexible when it comes to that, because now that I've been looking for a very long time, for different resources, I um, I found a couple of, for example, applications like on on the tablet or uh, or otherwise that just for Arabic. So in our in our household, we do have screen time. But it's very selective screen time, and I love how you can control the shows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but we never had like any games on the tablets or the computers. Uh, they still don't have that. Recently, I introduced it to them just for Arabic purposes, just to make it engaging and you know, like a motivation to to include their hearing and their um, their visual input. Um, 
so yeah just uh i found a couple of apps uh, one of them is uh it's called salem and the other one is called jeel and they're very fun and they're and i love how they align a little bit with the montessori uh like principles principles or approach to learning so for example like um the isolation of uh like isolation of uh, a, a letter or a color or you know just to help them focus and learn Tell me about Child Aura and your work with that and what you're hoping to accomplish and what resources you offer. Okay, so Child Aura is a place um, that I'm still creating. It's still in progress where it's a one-stop for families to learn about the Montessori approach positive parenting and Islamic parenting as well as I found its way to spread spread the 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 knowledge and spread the Montessori method and to help many families through parent coaching mentoring and consultation um, I'm also working on a program that it's going to come or be launched at the end of the year. Uh, it's more of like a homeschool Arabic, uh, Montessori-inspired Arabic materials. So just to help f- families, like I'm sure that there are other families who have the same challenges that I'm facing. So just, you know, just to help them um, with that too, uh, with what I you know, figured out and hopefully we can all help each other in that. And um, the reason why I called it Childora is just um, I was looking for a name that encompasses everything about a child. So I thought about aura as in something that surrounds you and it emits from you. So I, I trying to work around having a place where it everything that's around and from the child makes sense yeah 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 I love that and I'm sure there are a lot of other families who are going to be very excited about these resources yeah so So what has been um the most challenging part so far about raising your children bilingual and I guess trilingual because Egyptian Arabic and standard Arabic are really two different languages. Yeah. So the most uh, challenging part, I think, is um, I'll say like figuring things out as we go and trying to merge how we were raised and what we know now and how to uh, solve the conflict between both, you know, because it's it's like okay it's like you're inventing reinventing the wheel that makes sense um so that's the challenging part of it uh, that uh i'm facing yeah Mm. yeah and um have you found have you been able to connect with other montessorians who are also raising children whether 
speaking Arabic or not that you've been able to kind of share ideas with? So um, not yet, but um, I remember that I, uh, my cousin, and I mentioned her in the beginning of uh, our, our, our session. She, she studied Montessori as well, and she lives in Canada. She was, so she had the same, you know, dilemma that I'm taught, that I told you about, about the Egyptian Arabic, the Fusha language and English. And, um, and yeah, just coming to the conclusion that it's the best way to approach this is to treat the Fusha language as a third language. Um, this way you'll avoid the confusion between both uh, uh, dialects and, um, and ensure that it's a strong, a stronger foundation. Yeah. Awesome. So what advice would you give to parents who want to raise their children with two or more languages? So my advice would be if it's possible to start early. Uh, starting early is very impactful. Uh, using methods as one parent, one language can be very helpful. And just isolating the the language, whether it's by person, by place, by time, um, and to avoid <laughs> to avoid mixing two languages in one sentence, because that can be uh, very hurtful for the language development. And um, just trying to immerse the child in the language that you're trying to teach, for to sensory emerge immerse them in it so for example try trying to find uh kinetic things to to work with with their hands and their senses and a visual and auditory um um things to aid their 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 language learning um such as you know like songs uh making certain foods you know just things that can make it a lot of fun to learn and experience. Yeah. And if you have the opportunity to travel where that language is being spoken, even for just like a week, it, it can have a huge impact. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one question that I want to ask you about something we talked about a little while ago. So when you decided to start speaking more Arabic or mostly Arabic in your home, did that feel different to you in as far as your relationship to Arabic or to English? Did that, I guess, sort of feel emotionally different, your connection to the languages? Um, I When I started uh, talking Arabic in, at home, I felt relief. Uh, now that I have this just just as I felt when I, you know, when I sent my my children to preschool and I felt like relief. Okay, now I can just be a mom. The same thing happened when I started talking. Okay, now I can just be Egyptian. <laughs> now I can just be, you know, talking in Arabic. And, um, and yeah, and knowing that what I'm doing now, they're already getting their, their English from outside. And it's pretty strong. And now they have the opportunity to be introduced to their, you know, their heritage and uh, 
be able to communicate with their extended families, you know, understand understand new jokes and <laughs> and you know I try to do that through for example we play now we play Arabic songs and I try to do it like a Fusha songs. Um, you know, like the applications as well, they're like in Fusha. Uh, we read books. So for example, the other night we before bedtime we had a an Arabic Fusha Arabic book. Um, you know, it had um colors letters um numbers uh parts of uh, it's all it's all vocabulary parts of the body and we did like a mini uh, treasure hunt and they would say the name of the of the um, of the vocabulary and they go you know find uh azraq which is blue uh something that's blue or uh and this is my nose, and and it's, it's just a lot of fun now that we re we're positive uh, re reinforcing the language at home. So now they know that if they learn like a new Arabic language, it's so much fun, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. Is your husband his first language is also Egyptian Arabic, or is it a different yes. dialect? No, it's uh, it's yeah Egyptian like and and he has the same he faces the same problem that I'm facing like the you know the mixture of both in one sentence and um, trying to separate both. So if you notice like in English I can maintain a whole conversation in English, but if I'm tired and it happened a couple of times, if I'm tired I would see the <laughs> the person in front of me. Uh, bewildered then and like they might ask are you having a stroke because they just they, go, <laughs> they just heard me say for example do you know just what what did you just say <laughs> it takes me a couple of seconds to realize oh, okay now i mix them again you know <laughs> yeah. yeah oh that's funny well you're modeling bilingualism for your children what it means to be a bilingual and navigate multiple languages. Um, so I think those were all my questions. Is there anything else that you wanted to share or that you wanted to say before we end? Um, yeah, I would say that um, if you are a parent who, are, who is struggling with bilingualism and more importantly, by how you were raised and how you're trying to break some of the generational cycles. Just don't worry, <laughs> you got this. <laughs> and don't give in to criticism because um, as long as you have the proven strategies, you did your work, you did your research, uh, just know that children are resilient. And, um, and yeah, you got this. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. Thank you, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for the, for inviting me. I had uh, I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Nasma for joining me for this conversation. You can find more about Nasma at childaura.squarespace.com. And you can follow her on Instagram at child.aura. That's child.aura. 
You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.